All right. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast collection. It's Terry Doherty from WP Radio, and tonight I've got Lauren Lipkiss, Jason Dumbrack, and Nino Calbrazi, and we're going to be talking about counterfeiting and how it affects the insurance industry. Uh, lots of really cool information tonight, stuff I didn't know. It's really informative, so just sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome, everybody. It's Terry Doherty from the OIAA. On today's podcast, I'm very lucky to have Lauren Lipkiss, uh, Nino Calbrezi, and Jason Dumbreck. Nino and Jason are from Expera, and we've spoken to them before, but uh, we're very honored to have Lauren on our podcast today. Lauren, maybe you want to give us a little bit of background about yourself and what you do and uh, before we kick things off with our podcast. Sure. Thank you for that, Terry. Um, I'm a lawyer in private practice. I'm a member of a number of national and international organizations dealing with uh, counterfeit products and the counterfeiting of products, uh, both within Canada and elsewhere. And I work with investigators, both uh, in-house and uh, across the country. And I work with government and other resources and agencies that deal with this type of fraud. Excellent. And because it's fraud, that's why we have the guys from Expera on. I mean, because they're just the, the fraud gurus as well. So um, let's kind of get the show going. Um, Nino, Jason, can you guys tell us a little bit about what you do with Lauren and how you've engaged Lauren um, in the past and what it's all about we're going to talk about today? Sure, Nino, sure. go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so Lauren, Lauren would, uh, would be in a position to engage us, actually, as, as the lawyer. So what happens uh, typically is Lauren represents the brand owner uh, who has a concern or an issue, or Lauren, uh, through investigations, may have determined that there is a potential target that, that is suspected of selling counterfeit goods, and would then engage us, provide us as investigators instructions to conduct an investigation on behalf of him and the brand owner, and we typically just go out and do the legwork. Uh, and that, uh, as we talked about in, in previous podcasts, Terry, is we uh, typically start off with a buy and then work our way up from that point on, reporting and working very closely to, uh, to Lauren, with Lauren and, uh, and people in Lauren's position with other uh, brand owners and lawyers that we work with. Okay, cool. So kind of if I can just maybe ask a few follow-up questions from that. Um, so Nino and Jason, when you guys get involved in these investigations, are you guys looking for the bottom end, low end people that are selling the product? Are you guys basically looking to go back up the chain and see who the, the big producer is at the end of the day, whether it be offshore or somebody within Ontario, Canada, or just in the U.S. or wherever it is? Are you guys just looking to get that, that set of products off the market? Are you looking for the big picture? I'll take that one. You know, um, it's it's a it, it depends. Uh, to be honest, um, oftentimes it starts with the with the investigation of the the sort of bricks and mortar, or you know, more and more in the digital economy, a website, make the initial transaction, um, and then the uh, there's a decision that would be made at Lauren's level around you know how much further does it want to do do they want to go? Do we do we you know, move with a uh, cease and desist order or are there other remedies that are in mind? Obviously, when we're doing these transactions, we try to we try to garner as much information about the identity of the seller as possible. Um, and sometimes that can be tricky because the, the sellers, they know what they're doing and they don't want to necessarily, you know, identify themselves. But in order to make a transaction, particularly online, They've got to open the door a little bit, and then that's where you know our team tries to get our foot in the door and and uh, and identify who may be behind the website or who may be behind the um, the actual bricks and mortar location. Obviously, ideally, working your way up the chain um, is is uh, is best. But again, it it depends on on budgets, appetites. Um, there's a lot of different things that that influence there, but I know we've had some success moving up, up the chain uh, quite significantly to some pretty prolific um, counterfeiters. So stop there. Maybe Lauren wants to add something to that too. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure I could come up with some examples, but um, by way of background, if we find a counterfeit product and somebody tells us about it, we could just send a letter to the person that's counterfeiting saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and this is why, and please stop. And I would probably have a 1% or less success rate if I did that. But Jason and Nino and their team give value-added work to whatever we're doing. It, it's not just a matter of stopping the person that we find doing it, because ultimately, at the end, at the other end of this, we have organized crime. We have people that may be linked to terrorists. We have people that are linked to, to forced labor, to slave labor. I mean, this is what we're up against in other countries. And so bearing that in mind, the smallest case you can think of here could wind up stopping someone in a more significant case in another country. And so we, we've had over the recent past uh, some significant cases with uh, Nino and Jason's team, one involving automotive products. And automotive products, you're talking about health and safety there. You're talking about counterfeit products where people are putting the name and logo of a known brand, an OEM, an original equipment manufacturer, on a wheel, and that wheel is substandard. And the public thinks that they're buying a real wheel and that it's been, it's been specced out to pass all of Canada's safety standards. But good luck going over a pothole with that wheel because it might crack on you, cause an accident. It could even seriously harm you or kill you. And as a result of their investigation, we didn't serve the person that we caught with the counterfeit wheels with a letter saying, please don't do that. We had an investigator from Expera attend, explain what was going wrong, wrong to that person, observing what was in their premises, conducting an investigation beforehand to find out if it was one or four wheels that they had or if they had access to a lot of wheels so that we, we would know that it's worth going after. And it was. So we did. As a result of which, they came forth with the paperwork to show where they got it. They said, please give us a deal. Don't sue us. Don't do this. Don't do that. And we wound up catching the company in, in China that was exporting that product into Canada and elsewhere because they didn't just specialize in selling these fraudulent um, wheels to Canada. So there's one example where we, we got a great result for, for, for our client. In that case, it was one client. And then we had another case involving luxury goods. And so that involved a number of clients. And here we had somebody that, if I would tell you, their basement had more counterfeit product in it than most stores had. So much so that when the investigators went to pull out the counterfeit product, they couldn't fit it into one truck. They had to rent another truck. And so we cleared out all of the product. We wound up getting all the information on the, uh, the, the company in China that had exported that product, and we stopped them in China. And we did that immediately by liaising with a multiple rights holders, because we were doing that on behalf of a number of companies and a number of brands, and they had have their own team, in this case, China, and they went and stopped that counterfeiting uh, uh, distributor. So I've got to assume this is really time consuming um, months and long investigations in these kind of products or investigations because you're not just being able to, you know, get into this person's basement on the day one to see this stuff unless this is their showroom and they have no idea what they're doing. You are 100% correct in the two examples I gave you. Uh, sometimes we do get lucky that we get information and it's not quite as big as that and we're able to act quickly sometimes that does happen so and i'm not saying one percent of the time i'm saying I'm, I'm sure it's a healthy tens of percentages of time that it isn't as complicated as that it is more narrowly focused but generally speaking you're right now is it just um, physical products that you look at in counterfeiting or do you deal with intellectual property as well well, that's, that is, there is intellectual property that is being fraudulently used on those physical products. So you'll have a pair of shoes that has the name of an, uh, of a, 
that has a name brand on it, and the public thinks they're buying a Jordan or a Nike or a Fila or an Adidas, or you pick a company, and or they think they've got a luxury bag that could be Prada or Louis Vuitton or uh, Gucci or some of those companies, and they they sometimes know that it's a counterfeit and they don't care. That's but it's still a fraud. They're still hurting the image and goodwill and reputation of the legitimate company, and sometimes they don't even know that it's counterfeit. And that's when the public really gets upset. They're not so upset when they buy a counterfeit and they know it's counterfeit, but when they buy a counterfeit and they don't know, they get very upset. So are you finding that this is happening, becoming more prevalent then? I've been doing this since 1985. And I can say with, with certainty that in every single year since then, the problem has increased, never decreased, not once. And it's and now it's online. Um, Jason mentioned web website. Very often we catch a physical person, like a person with a physical business in Canada, but they're doing way more business online. And so we liaise with, like the Canadian Anti Fraud Center or other examples where we can get a result. We can deal directly with Amazon or directly with some of the uh, online platforms to stop the counterfeiting of their product online. And just as the legitimate marketplace is moving less and less to physical goods in physical premises, what we call offline businesses, they're moving to online businesses. But until we get there, there's always a com almost always a combination. A company is in one area, and they're also in the other area. Yeah, I mean, I'm, so I'm just thinking back to when I was younger. I would be walking through a parking lot. There'd be a guy in a van pull up and go, hey, I got some speakers. Uh, I'm trying to offload them. My boss told me I've got to get rid of them. We're closing. You know, these are the best JBL speakers you'll ever find. I'm just using that brand name. It could be any brand. Uh, or movies. I've got brand new movies for you for a dollar. And you know they're not legitimate, and you're going to find somebody stand up in the movie at some point and walk across the screen holding popcorn, that kind of stuff. I mean, is is it gone from being that unsophisticated to now it's more sophisticated? It's getting much more sophisticated fraud online for this kind of counterfeiting? Yes. If you want me to expand on that. I would love you to. Let, let me just say that from what I'm observing – the fastest growing industry in fraud is counterfeiting. It is the fastest growing industry. The second fastest growing is anti-counterfeiting. And that's why I said to you that it's been increasing every single year because we can't get, we can't get the uh, government to take it as seriously as we think they should. We can't get law enforcement to deal with frauds of this type, and this isn't the only fraud, we have overly stretched our law enforcement uh, resources. And so now there's more and more serious crime out there. And that means less and less time spent for this type of uh, fraudulent crime. And we've got people that are looking at this saying, I, I don't have the money for an expensive item. I want a cheaper item. And so there's no education. And I'm big on education, and I think that one of the reasons we're falling down on this is a lack of education of the public into the dangers of counterfeit. So is, and, and you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, so it's tied to organized crime, um, slave workers, those kind of things. I don't think the public, I'll agree with you, I don't think the public even knows that that's even a piece of it. Do you know that the number two method of financing for organized crime and terrorist illicit work, the number two, ahead of gambling, ahead of prostitution, is counterfeiting. The only huh. one that they get more money from is drugs. I had no idea. Number two, the OECD, Organization for Economic Development, they came out with a study and it has subsequently been updated but since 2016, you can look at that study, and they came out with that conclusion. And that is a factual study wow. that proves that. 
and you know, sorry, a, a lot of people don't know the 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 story behind the Charlie Hebdo um, terrorist um, murders, and that's the one that was in um, that was in Paris, that was in France uh, regarding Charlie Hebdo, the um, the publication, and. What people don't know is that the police were actually following the terrorists that were ultimately guilty of this. They were following them. When they found out that, quote, all they were involved in, close quote, were selling counterfeit consumer products, they stopped following them. One month later, these guys broke into the offices of that publication and murdered all those people. They obtained their financing for that entire operation from the sale of counterfeit consumer products. I've never heard that before. That is uh, a frightening fact. Go to Google or any browser you want and type in Charlie Hebdo murders and you'll learn about the story. It's, it's wow. frightening. I find it frightening. Uh, I'm dealing with police officers in Toronto that have street gangs that we know that are buying their guns and bullets through the sale of counterfeit apparel and counterfeit luxury goods at flea markets in the Toronto area. So here's a question. What is the top good, if you know what it is, that is counterfeited? What is the top good? Is it luxury purses? Is it bags? Is it phones? What, what, what's getting counterfeited the most? It used to be luxury goods and apparel, if I could put that as one group. But to your point, Terry, as this has become very sophisticated, they are they are counterfeiting the parts used in aircraft. That's pretty sophisticated. They're counterfeiting ball bearings. They're counterfeiting contact lenses. These aren't just luxury goods. So I would say that electronics has greatly moved up the rank. And electronics is either number one or two now. You know, yeah. that's a nod. Terry, Terry, yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, for the benefit our, of our insurance folks that are listening to this podcast, um, one of the concerns that I think they may want to consider is these counterfeit parts going into vehicles. Uh, we know with property damage that the insured has the right to go to any garage to get their vehicle repaired. It's the parts that go into that vehicle and into that repair that can cause some concern from a safety standpoint. Um, it brings to mind one example where we were retained to uh, find a warehouse uh, or the people behind these windshields that were being advertised for sale, well below the market prices. And all we had was a phone number and that was it. And they couldn't find anything on that phone number because it didn't go technically anywhere. So they came to us and through a series of investigation that we conducted, we were, we were able to establish the location of the warehouse. And I was quite surprised to see how sophisticated this business was. They had a front reception area. Um, I managed to, uh, to legally get into the business, be invited into the business under a pretext and inside the actual warehouse itself. And I was astonished at the size of the warehouse and the sophistication in terms of uh, the way everything was properly labeled. So they had skids of windshields for Honda, skids of windshields for, for uh, Ford, uh, different models, just you name it, they had the windshield for that vehicle. Um, and none of these windshields were approved. They were not, uh, they didn't meet the safety standards, uh, which is extremely dangerous when you think about it if you were involved in the collision and you ended up going into the windshield, it would just shatter and rip you apart. Uh, so that's where I think, you know, it certainly is a concern when you're authorizing those payments. Uh, I'm not sure exactly from a legal standpoint, what sort of exposure the insurance company has, but certainly there's a moral issue uh, there for sure, in terms of making sure that, you know, that, that the vehicle is repaired safely. So you, that's a really good point, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate a little bit more on it, and we'll face that again, I think, in property claims where we're buying, our, our contractors are going in and buying non-OEM parts or non-standard CSA parts for plumbing fixtures and toilets and those kind of failures we're seeing 
you know, all the time where these things literally, it's it stamped uh, oil, gas, water, and it's not even set up to do that. I mean, I, and I've seen it myself in handling some investigations where these parts are literally, they don't, they look like they're specced properly and they've got the CSA stamp on them. But, you know, after they've been analyzed, they're like, this is not even a CSA part. It doesn't exist in their catalog. I mean, so here's the question. How do we as insurance companies and adjusters and investigators, how do we find or deal with this? I mean, you guys are, I mean, Lauren, on your end, you're seeing this from a manufacturing standpoint. You're looking to get the product off from the manufacturing. But us as the insurance company, we've got a recovery. It's going to be hard for us to recover against these companies. So if I could, if I could speak to that. Oh, absolutely. That, that's been part of the evolution in this area. At one time, insurance companies were not even involved in any of this. In 1985, when I said I started, it was four T-shirts for 10 bucks at a flea market. It was all flea market. There were no stores. Today, it's exact duplications. They might be substandard, but they've copied every part of it. The, the, the tags, the labels, the paperwork, everything is being countered. And it's very sophisticated. They spend a lot, the counterfeiters spend a lot of time, money, and energy on making it look like the real thing, but it's not. And so the fraudsters have said, hey, this, this counterfeiting situation is really good. Let's not just worry about putting stuff in the market marketplace and worry about people like Lipkiss trying to get rid of it and people like uh, Nino and Jason coming after us. Why don't we just buy some stuff, have an invoice, and burn it or put it in a flood so that we can make a claim against our insurance company? Don't think that's not happening because I've been consulted on cases like that where someone has made a claim, they're showing a fake invoice and we're being retained and we look at the product and we go, cause they get some samples and we go, that's not real product. They said, well, they say that they've got all this product but it's been burnt and we don't even have it anymore. It's been destroyed. These are some of the samples they had. I said, well, if it's like that, then it's counterfeit. And so now insurance companies are being more careful. And what does that come down to? I mentioned it before, education. But that includes the education of the insurance companies. The adjusters that are going out are now, the ones that are aware of it are being more mindful. One of the cases that I'm talking about, I I spoke at an insurance uh, uh, conference on the issue of counterfeit consumer products. And right after that, I got a call with someone said, we have a claim that we were gonna pay on someone that had a fire and they said, these goods are counterfeit. As fate would have it, the person who was making the sizable claim was someone that we had served with an Anton Pillar order several years prior that the police had actually raided at one point in time and was a pain in the you know what because they were a known counterfeiter who was recidivist and still a pain. They didn't pay the claim, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) So, Lauren, how do we find out? um, Is there a list of goods that we would be able to see that, you know, is the standard stuff that you guys are seeing as counterfeit that we should be looking out for? Is there somewhere we can go? Um, There might be some places that you can go. The problem is there's no one entity that deals with all the products. So you mentioned those electrical products and plumbing products. And you you mentioned CSA. So you take a company like CSA, a company like Canadian Standards, we know them well, UL, Underwriters Laboratory, and there are others. Those companies have very robust anti-counterfeiting programs. That label is worth something. And if it's got that label on it, The public believes that it's been tested, it's safe, it's following a certain standard, they buy it. Well, those companies are concerned because if the products are substandard, they're out in the marketplace wanting to do something. One example, so an electronic product, we're talking about, um, you know, the Apple iCube chargers, the cube chargers that you get when you buy your phone and you plug them in the wall. So those are... Those are 
certified by UL. There's a UL sticker right on them, not a sticker. It's actually printed right into the cube charger. UL, and the reason I'm able to tell you all this is public record. UL went and decided to do a study. There you go. UL decided to do a study. They took 400 cube chargers worldwide, including chargers that, and they were all at random. They just went and got them. But I happen to know that some of those chargers came from Canada. And I happen to know, in fact, that some of those chargers came from some well-known locations in Canada, well-known malls. They tested the 400 of them. How many do you think passed Canada's minimum safety standards? How many of the 400? Did you say 393 did not pass? Wow. Did you oh. know that three of them, sorry, I think it was three, posed, could have been more, I think it was might have been 12, posed hazardous electrocution hazards. If you go online, you can look to the UL cube charger study and it's there and available to the public. Now, that being said, the end consumer, when they buy these products, most of them don't know. They go on to Amazon and I mean, everybody's, uh, you know, me included, you go on to Amazon and you look at the Amazon, you go, hey, they're a good certified, you know, five-star seller. This is a great product. Um, it's an iPhone charger or whatever, or Android charger. They buy it and it says it meets all the standards, but how do you know as an end user if it does or doesn't? You see, one of the things you said, Terry, was a five-star user. They took a look. If you think that it's hard to actually make the product, or if you think it's easy to do it, how hard or easy do you think it is to get a good review? Well, you that's my counterfeit point. the reviews, and so you go online. I, I don't trust reviews, but I, I look at price. I look at price, and if if I if I'm buying a, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollar iPhone, iPad, or Samsung device, why would I want to spend two bucks on something that's on a, uh, on a marketplace to charge it? Like, really? Think about it. I know, but you're, you, I, and other people are different than most consumers. You're going to look price, you know, price, you get what you pay for. Right. But the average consumer's not really looking at that they plug it in at home. They go to bed at night. They wake up in the middle of the night because their house is now on fire. Education. Education. Right? And then, I mean, and they, they're basically the innocent insured who's bought this product thinking, hey, I got a great deal. I bought this charger. It's great. I got it off Amazon. And again, they're not looking, and I get the education piece, but they're not looking going, um, hey, this five-star review could be skewed. They're just, you know, a guy thinking he's getting a great deal. He even bought four other chargers. Thank God they weren't plugged in in their kids' room, so only the main floor caught on fire to start with and not every room in the house. I mean, and those are the kind of things that we're up against as the insurance company, and most of the time the product is consumed by the fire or the flood or it's broken or whatever. And this is where I'm getting to is, like, I get the education piece, but there's got to be some central housing system that says, hey – you know, these are the items for the general public we should be looking at as counterfeit pieces. And then, you know, when you get those claims, they should flag. If you look at the list from the best, the best stats are from uh, uh, CBP, the um, Customs and Border Patrol in the U.S. They have their stats every year for what's been seized at the border. And I think that's pretty indicative. Of, of what's being counterfeited because they're constantly looking for all kinds of counterfeit. And if they're finding certain counterfeit, that's it. I know years ago, uh, out of nowhere, they found that the number one product coming into O'Hare airport uh, in Chicago were electronics for, for whatever reason, but that's only part of the borders in the U S so it fit within those, those uh, seizures. And they, they seize in the U S upwards of 30,000 seizures a year. So you have pretty good stats there. 
Okay, good. I'm going to, I've got that written down. So I will definitely put that and we'll, we'll add this to the tagline somewhere in the podcast as well. So we can have our general public look at those as well. Two international organizations that also on their website have really good information on this is the International Trademark Association, INTA.org, and the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition, IACC.org. And uh, you're talking about very large, significant organizations that that get this information. A lot of it is anecdotal, but they do uh, publish the stats that come from Europol and Interpol and other organizations. So Jason and Nino on your end, um, is there anything you can do when you're working with Lauren and his team that you can maybe disseminate out to the insurance company saying, hey, this is what we're doing right now without infringing or giving away any um, you know, proprietary information? Is there anything you can send out from your side and Lauren, maybe you can speak to this as well, that you could send out to the insurance company saying, hey, we're currently seeing a batch of this type of product that's being counterfeited. So, you know, keep your eyes and ears open. Uh, let us know if you're seeing these coming in as claims. We can assist you. Those kind of things. I mean, I think it would be good if it went both ways. Is that a fair statement? Is that something we could do, do you think? It, that's uh, similar to what Lauren said. It's, it's complicated because we'll see... Um, for instance, you know, at the holiday season, you'll see a proliferation of, of extension cords um, that are that are all, you know, using the, the counterfeited CSA logos or UL logos, and you know they're not they're not up to standard. I think the I think the uh, the key is similar to what Lauren mentioned around education, and and when you're you know when you're doing a, a fire investigation and an origin and cause, you know. That's something that needs to be to be really considered. If if like you mentioned, it's not consumed in the event in the fire or the flood, but having that um, that investigative mindset that's that's kind of saying, uh, I'm not so sure this was you know the way the roof collapsed on this car suggests that perhaps the the windshield failed, which you know would then maybe lead to a different investigation to determine was this windshield in fact, OEM um, at the at the time of the loss. So it's it's kind of having that raised eyebrow, so to speak, when you're when you're looking at the the origins of either an accident or a loss or something along those lines. Now, all that being said, if we if we come across uh, you know something large and prolific that we know is going to be infiltrating the Canadian marketplace or the GTA, um, you know, I'm sure there's mechanisms by which we can share that with you, Terry and. Uh, and, and people just, you know, kind of have their their eyes and ears open. Yeah, I mean, I remember, sorry, and I, and Lauren, I look like you were about to speak, but I, I was just, just going to say, I remember sometime earlier this year where we were seeing, and I forget who sent it out, that there was a problem with a counterfeit, one of these um, candles that you plug in or lights that you plug in for the Christmas holiday season. It was a, you know, one of these little scenes that you plug in, but it was a counterfeit version of it. And we were kind of warned, I forget who it was, that, you know, we're expected to see fires from them because they were such a problem. Now, that's good for us seeing them right now, but you're going to forget six months down the road and somebody's going to plug it in or have it in their basement and their kid's going to plug it in and it's going to cause a fire. It's those kind of things that I think if we just had a list or an ongoing list you could look to. Talk about the wheel uh, ball bearings. That's really interesting. I did people who are counterfeiting ball bearings, but I mean, it makes sense because you're saying they counterfeit rings. Counterfeit everything. I mean, in, yeah. <laughs> so we got to look for everything from now on is really what you're saying. There's, uh, there's some giveaways. There's certainly some giveaways. And, and Lauren, uh, Lauren's always said that one of, the, one of the first things you look at, Terry, is if the price is too good to be true, there's your first indicator. Uh, oh, I agree with that. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. That's that's a that's a, certainly is a is a big one, and uh, and one that anyone anyone common sense. But you know, you know, I, I do feel bad for the insurance industry. For example, if you got a claimant who claims that they lost a purse in a theft, uh, perhaps someone broke into their vehicle, and of course they don't have the receipt. It was a it was a present. 
but it was a uh, Louis Vuitton and it was legitimate. Here's some pictures of, uh, of them actually, you know, with the purse at one time before it was stolen. What do you do in a case like that? You don't have the item to inspect. Um, so it puts you at a disadvantage for sure. And, um, you know, we talked about the certifications last time on our previous podcast, and we had one case where we, uh, I spoke briefly about where it involved a, one of these Hoover boards, right, uh, where people plug these things in and to charge them up, and then they do catch on fire and, and start some serious fires, and I think have uh, been involved in some pretty serious uh, fires. Um, when we were making the buy, we noticed that they some of them had the the safety certification, and some of them didn't. So when we said we were interested in buying one in particular, but we're concerned because it didn't have the certification label, he said no problem. Reached into his cash register and pulled out a roll of those little stickers and put them on and say, "There you go. It's now certified," which of course wasn't true. So. And I, Lauren can tell you some stories, and I've heard them before about these um, these cords or these Christmas tree lights that are that are being used um, again at a really good price, and which makes it very tempting for the consumer to go out and buy it. Uh, but unfortunately, these have been involved in some pretty major fires, and I know uh, Lauren's worked uh, personally with that certification company. Can probably elaborate on that, but you've read about it in the newspapers. It happens quite often. And, uh, and again, if it's from a store that doesn't charge more than a dollar, be careful. So I'm not saying that everything there is counterfeit, but I'm just saying, just, just really be careful. So here's a funny little story. I was out at one of these type of retailers recently, and I came across power bars for $5. Now I know that a power bar doesn't cost $5. So I bought two of them and they have the UL sticker on the back. Now I want to have them tested and I bought them for the purpose of this interview because to me, this is a telltale sign. They had a basket of them and they were selling them for cash only. You couldn't get a receipt because they weren't, they were such a good deal that you couldn't pay tax on them. I couldn't turn down the chance to buy them because I thought when we're having this interview, I want to know what we can do with something like this. This here, to me, is scary. It's frightening. I'm never going to plug them in, but I want to know what they're made of and how they're all together and who did it. So if I had them, there's three things I would do, like right off the top of my head. Because I like to destroy things, um, my, my wife says it's why I'm so handy because I'm so good at breaking things. Um, and, and she's right. She's actually right. But I would cut the cord to see if there's actually three wires coming into the end that goes in the wall. Because very often when we seize counter, counterfeit power, power bars or surge protectors, there's three prongs that go in the wall and only two wires. The next thing I would do is I would look at the gauge. This is part of the same thing, is I would look at the gauge of the wire with a gauge device, yeah. like something, yeah. like if you have something that you can measure the gauge, and to see if it's the same gauge that it's, it's, it's set, that it's advertised to be on the back. You were very smart for buying two, because if you're looking for a counterfeit, the first thing you do is make sure you get two of the item. If it's got a number or a certification, certification number, you tell me if the two numbers on those holograms are the same or not. So if they're the same, okay, that's doesn't mean they're not counterfeit, but it certainly mean, doesn't mean that they obviously are counterfeit. Let me check and I'll tell you in two seconds, guys. <laughs> They appear to be identical numbers. <laughs> so the first thing you want to do, the first thing you want to do is that that could mean they're legitimate. Now you go to the really important part about this that I think is the answer to what you want as someone in the insurance industry. UL has a very robust website which gives you the ability to take what you just saw that little hologram search that number and if you search that number it's going to give you a whole bunch of information as to where who made it what it is 
So sometimes we do the search and we find out we're looking at a, a, a power cord and it's got some other product. It's not even a power cord. That's counterfeit because the counterfeiters, we catch the lazy ones. And so you'll also find out if those are sequentially numbered. And if they're sequentially numbered, that means that every single item should have a different number. And if, if what you have is a diff, two different numbers, that's great. That's an indicator that it's real. If it says that that manufacturer can manufacture that product under this number and it's not sequentially numbered, well, then you know that, 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 on that in that case, that's an indicator. And, and UL versus Intertech versus CSA versus pick a company might have a different specification for a different product for a different manufacturer. So you have to look it up and see what it is. Yeah, I just thought I'd buy two because I figured I'd be using one in a destructive testing and then the other one would be my exemplar. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't know where to start with it. So Lauren, you've given me great advice on this. I'm actually going to take the cord off. Uh, my neighbor's an electrician. I'm going to have him test the gauge wiring, confirm what it is in, in our next and podcast. I think this could be a great series. I got to be honest. Nino, um, Nino's finding counterfeit stuff and you guys telling me what to do with it. <laughs> Nino's been uh, at our conference, and I think Jason has as well. And uh, he's actually seen these power cords, and it's so funny in a very sad way and a very upsetting way to see three prongs. And you're looking at, I got more hair on the top of my head than wire in that power cord. Because what the counterfeiter does when it comes to electrical products like cords, the, the, the big money is in the copper. Sure. The copper costs a lot of money. Now, let's say they 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 put on their packaging that it's a certain gauge and that it'll handle a certain power load. I would venture to say, I don't know the answer to this, but I would venture to say that if you ask people to go through their house and look at their power cords, what percentage of the actual power that cord can handle is on that power cord it's a tenth of what it can handle. That's why there aren't as many fires as there are. But when you put a heater in any power cord, you are using a very large load. Heaters take up huge power. You could probably charge 50 phones on that, 20 phones, whatever, without coming close to the current that's gonna put it in danger and cause a fire. But if we're talking about fire, something like a heater is going to eat that up. And if you put two of them on there thinking, well, what are you talking about? It'll hold this. I'll put them in there. You're going to have a fire. Yeah. Or it's going to trip or whatever. I mean, I, I know we bought a space heater from a large retailer that we couldn't even put in our regular 15 amp circuit. It blew it. It tripped unless, the breaker. Unless the actual, we've had counterfeit circuit breakers. Yeah. Well, um, that don't get well, hopefully including, not. Including circuit breakers in Canada that were in hospitals hooked up to ICU equipment. Oh, boy. So, Lauren, Jason, Nino, taken away from this, I mean, this, I, we could talk about this on multiple cod, podcasts, and I think this would be a great series. I got to be honest. Um, like, we talked about the wheels. Did the dealership or the shop that was selling these wheels even know they were counterfeit? Were they a were they a player in this? Would you it, say, or were they were they duped? Willfully blind or duped? Uh, willfully blind. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, and again, that's the problem, right? They think they're getting a fantastic deal. They're then passing it on to the the you know the end user, being our insured or an insured who goes out and ha hits a pothole car flips over, tire blows, and now we're down the road of we've got injuries, let alone damage to a vehicle. When an investigator walks into a place, or if I happen to be the person who walks in, and you say to that person, you've basically been doing something illegal, and they go, what are you talking about? I have receipts. I charge tax. I have my tax returns. I have every invoice for what I bought and they run right away and they give you their invoices. This is where I bought them. You have my attention. I'm going to try and help you. You have been duped. 
my opinion right away, you've been duped. Someone who, here, pay cash. If you pay cash, you can save the tax. And, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't have that receipt. We threw that out. Or I don't know. If you have a story, I, I have no sympathy for you. If you transact business that you're not keeping a receipt, then I tend not to believe that you were duped versus either knowingly or willfully blind. And, and both, of them, both of them are criminal. Yeah, I was going to say at the end of the day, is there really much of a difference? So, guys, I mean, there's so much to unpack with this. Um, let's talk about, and I, I, again, I'm going to take these cords and hopefully we can do a part two and I'm going to take them apart and I'll, I'll destroy one. I'll go buy another one actually, because I'm going to be in that area next week. So I'll have a third one to see what this, I'm going to start looking, maybe I'll buy a couple more. Uh, they're pretty cheap just so I can actually do my experimentation on them and look at the copper and those kind of things. But I, I'm pretty sure the last time I bought a power bar, it wasn't $5 cash and no receipt. You can get a cheap power bar for under $10. So it's not impossible. And don't overlook the possibility that they're stolen. Okay. <laughs> you know, think I was you know counterfeit, so I was just, you know, I'm on counterfeit go. Thanks. Now you so. know why my friends don't like me. Yeah. Um, so... What else can we we learn from the from an insurance or an adjuster standpoint with regards to counterfeiting, guys? Like, um, are are we are we thinking this is you know this is one of the pieces of the puzzle we should be looking at on all claims when well, we start looking at you know property and products? Are we certainly that much of a rise in it? I, I think that you you should you can walk before you run. You can look at the commodities that are probably a problem. Uh, if I asked you how many airbags, counterfeit airbags have been seized in the U.S. in the last year, you and I wouldn't know the answer. I'm not sure either, but it's significant. But I know the answer for Canada. So how many airbags do you think have been seized in last year? 2,800. Okay. You're only off by 2,800. <laughs> Really? Zero. Same answer the previous year. Same answer the previous year. Are there, you, you know, you would almost think that there's a, 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 a fence, a border, a concrete wall preventing counterfeit airbags from crossing the border from the U.S. into Canada. And yet, if you go to U.S. law enforcement, they'll tell you that there, there are cases of counterfeit airbags. Why aren't they in Canada? They are in Canada. We're just, we just finding have them. If I was in the insurance industry and an airbag went off, I'd be my antenna would be going nuts. I'd be saying, "Where did you get this airbag? Was it there when the when the when the uh, car was manufactured?" Okay, if nothing ever happened to it, if it was never put in aftermarket, no problem. But what if it was put in aftermarket? Well, if that's the second airbag in that car, let's ask two questions. What are the chances in your lifetime of being in a vehicle and having the airbag go off? Not very high, but possible. Now, what are the odds of it happening a second time? How lucky are you that it, you've had an airbag go off twice in the same car? I would be questioning that. Now, are you talking about them just going off on their own or going off during an Go, accident? Going to, no, going off, you, you, an airbag went off in a vehicle and you're being asked as the insurer to cover the, to cover the loss. And you usually look, the airbag went off, you find out how much everything costs, you send the person to the proper place, get it repaired, thank you very much. Do your analysis, all your insurance related analysis and you decide on the claim but nobody has said well wait a second what if this person went and got it done at some shop in toronto that i can go to and say show me where you bought this airbag every airbag has got a serial number they don't sell airbags without 
telling you what the serial number is. This is serious stuff when you sell an airbag. And actually, you should only be able to get an OEM airbag from an OEM. So where did you get that airbag? Now, all of a sudden, there's some liability issues. And maybe that, that person that put that in or that business that put that in should be paying that insurance claim. And what about brakes? And what about grills that go in the front of the car? You probably know that a grill that is put in by an OEM works in conjunction with collision avoidance technology. And if you put in a counterfeit grill, well, then it's not of the same specifications as the legitimate one and the collision avoidance doesn't work as well. Maybe you're driving with using your collision avoidance and the collision avoidance thinks by going through that grill that you're over here, but actually you're over there. Now, Lauren, is there's something different between aftermarket and counterfeit. So you're legitimately buying an aftermarket that's not claiming to be an OEM. Yeah, who's got airbags that claim to be aftermarket? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. So I don't think so. You can only get legitimate ones from an OEM. There's people aren't making. I'm not aware. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but I'm not aware of aftermarket airbags. Okay. Because if you have a vehicle, the OEM says if anything goes wrong with your vehicle, you should you have to get it fixed back here. You come here. If the if a company wants to put an airbag in there because they, there was a collision, they go to the OEM and the OEM will have a record of it, that they sent that part to that entity to put it in that car. Okay. Now, aside from that, let's go back to the windshields. So this windshield case that you were working on, Nino and Jason, um, are they were they putting themselves out to be... Um, OEM windshields or aftermarket windshields or how were they presenting themselves? Yeah, so we were working for, in this case, it wasn't with Lauren, but it was another lawyer and they represented, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the, of the, the car company, but they were concerned that it was, that their, this company was being used to advertise these, these windshields. Um, and somehow they got a complaint about the windshield. And this is how they got tipped off, uh, that it, it, it cracked during installation or, or, or it cracked when, when it got cold or when it, uh, uh, when it turned from winter to summer. I can't remember what it was, but something, something uh, resulted in a complaint. And when they looked at it, they realized that it wasn't a legitimate product, that it was a counterfeit uh, windshield. So... But they wanted that this company investigated, and they didn't have the information, the location of uh, of where they operated. Uh, so they sent us, and we went out and we found it, and we found not only uh, that particular brand of windshield, as I mentioned, but but every other uh, manufacturer, car manufacturer, you name it, it was there. So that place uh, got raided after uh, we prepared a report, sent it to the uh, lawyer. And it then went to the police. And I don't know the disposition of the charges or anything like that, because at that point, we're out of it. I know we weren't called to testify, which suggests that, that quite likely there might have been a plea. And, um, and who knows what the individual uh, received as a sentence. But that's what happened in that case. So, Nino, speaking just specifically to that, maybe Lauren or Jason, you can answer this as well. Now, we do there, there is aftermarket windshields. So, I mean... And there's windshields are made like Apple has them standard. And there's all sorts of aftermarket companies that are putting in windshields. You don't always go back to the dealer. Um, so it, am, I, am I to assume that it's the type, the way this windshield failed that was the problem? So because typically your windshield, when it breaks, it doesn't shatter. It's got that shatter resistance glass. So it basically... You know, most of the time you don't go through the windshield, you just get stuck in it, um, right? You get that spidering effect on the windshield when your head bounces off of it. So in this case, I got to assume if somebody was going through that windshield, they're going out and going through it. I think, uh, it, well, there's a, you're right. There's, you know, I know from my own experience with windshields, <clears throat> they, you, 
you can have an OEM replacement or you can have an aftermarket replacement. And the OEMs are clearly stamped. Uh, so for instance, in the bottom left corner, you know, you'll see, um, you know, like BMW, St. Gobain glass, it's all stamped, it's in it and it performs as an OEM product. But if that little imagery at the bottom is on something that's actually not a St. Gobain piece of glass, I think that's where you run into the problem. Okay. So Jason is highlighting a, a, a very, you know, significant issue. And that is we have wonderful aftermarket companies. They make fantastic products. We're not talking about that. We're talking about substandard, counterfeit, illegal products. And that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So from the adjuster standpoint, that, and again, we've got adjusters that are new to the, to the adjusting world, like, you know, right out of school in the adjusting world to guys that are senior, um, you know, adjusters, you know, guys, girls, everybody working the adjusting side of things, right up to the senior road people, that some of them just, this is going to be above them. They're not going to have noticed this stuff. I mean, because we don't talk about counterfeiting a lot. I mean, you talk about it, you know, where I hear it most is I get the most calls about, hey, uh, I got this claim with some Louis Vuitton bag. It's always Louis Vuitton, Prada, Gucci, um, no. you know, those high-end, what? Chanel. <laughs> Chanel, yeah. And then the, the new one is uh, Hermes. Everybody seems to have a $30,000 Hermes bag, uh, which is amazing. Uh, good for them. Uh, but I got a great contact that I can personally call at Louis Vuitton on their hotline to verify if this item was ever purchased by that person or somebody on their behalf. And that's great. But not everybody has that contact. So, I mean, and that's what where we're going to run into these things is people sometimes just because they kind of get caught up in the awe of it. Right. When they're adjusting, they're thinking, oh, this guy's got this great stuff. But then you've got to look at the lifestyle. Does it even match the products that they're claiming for? Right. So, and that would tell you, you know, does it lead to these being more counterfeit? You know, they show up in a Joe Fresh sweater, but they're carrying, you know, a $30,000 Hermes bag. Yeah, maybe that happens. Not typically. Terry, I'd like to make a point. Um, well over 90% of the identification of counterfeit products like luxury goods can be made through images without actually looking at the actual item and having it in your hands. When you're talking about a luxury bag, thank, thankfully we have social media. And if someone says, well, my, my $25,000 Birkin bag is, <laughs> is, is, uh, is gone, oh my God, and you can't otherwise locate it, what are the chances that that person is going to have a picture on their social media holding that Birkin bag? Pretty good. And possible that if the picture is good enough and if there's enough of them that you can tell. And believe it or not, some things are as simple as what color was a Birkin bag or what color was an item. I first, one of the first things I ask is what color was it? They say, why? Because they don't make it in every color under the rainbow, but the counterfeiters make it in every color under the rainbow. Yeah. And so it's an indicator. Yeah. And I've learned, you know, when I, I've been, and I've been doing this long enough, I've, I've seen the liner inside some of these bags are, yep. are much different on the counterfeit than they are on the original. They'll spend the money to make the outside look right, but they don't spend the money on the inside. Exactly. Good point. Good point. Right. So, and, and it was, uh, and it was only recently that I had a case where somebody had said they had bought something and, uh, I said, Oh, that's great. And, and then, they they showed me the photo and I could see the inside of the the item and it 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 wasn't real. <laughs> it just didn't meet the sniff test. So um, guys, well, I need some takeaways from this for today. And uh, so give me the top five things that you guys think we can take away as adjusters, the insurance industry that we should be looking at when we're talking counterfeit. Maybe I'll get two from each of you. So maybe we'll take six. I'll go first because uh, someone else takes this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, price is a concern. If it's uh, too good to be true, then it probably is too good to be true. So if it's uh, uh, really, really low in price compared to what it should cost, then 
again, be careful. Um, the other thing, again, you know, going back to the windshield case, uh, it, I, I forgot to mention that that particular case involved a mobile service. And, and not to say that mobile services are, 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 are crooked, they're all bad. That's not true. But in this particular case, one of the things that I would have been concerned is that there's no physical location. You're not buying from a, uh, uh, from a, from a legitimate business that if you had a concern, you can go back to that business. And when someone advertises themselves as a mobile service company, it'd be nice to know that there's a head office, some location that you can go back to if you had a concern. If there isn't, mm, be very careful. All right. So that's my two from you. I got price of good, mobile only, no physical location. How about you, Jason? Lauren, I'm going to leave you to the end because you've got a wealth of knowledge in this and you'll be able to fill in the blanks for these two guys for sure. Um, I, I would suggest that perhaps if there's a, um, a loss that involves uh, any sort of safety device, so, you know, like a helmet, a baby carrier, um, drugs, cosmetics, uh, and a lot of, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, COVID-19 type related stuff, test kits, PPE and 95 masks, anything like that. I think, I think you should be looking at it with a raised eyebrow and, and, and saying, you know, is, is this, or was this device authentic? Um, now it's going to be hard to subrogate, uh, you know, but it, it, it may play, uh, some part in the claim. Uh, if the device failed because it was it was completely counterfeit, um, you know, I'd, I even you know I, we saw that tragedy on the weekend um, at that fire in the Bronx, and it started with a uh, to your point, Terry. It was a they figure it was a space heater. So, uh, you know, was that a space heater that was on a cord that was overloaded? Um, you know, well, I guess we'll find out when the the when the investigation plays out, but I think those sort of things, anything involving safety or, you know, electronics, cords, that type of stuff, um, that's the kind of stuff you want to be looking at and, and determining if it was in fact um, authentic. Excellent. And how about you, Lauren? What can we, what, what can be filling some blanks here on some things adjusters should be looking at? Well, place. Where, where was this bought? Where did it come from? Is it likely that someone in a convenience store is selling a computer? Is it likely that someone in a flea market is selling high-end electronics? Possible. It is. I'm not saying it's not possible, but you have to question it. It means you have to do more, more due diligence. And what what is really, I think, lacking, not just in the insurance industry, but life in general, in fraud, is open source intelligence. We have so much information available on the internet, and every day there's more and more. Three or four years from now, they estimated there will be 10 times as much information as in there now, and it doesn't go away. It's still there. Open source intelligence. Have your investigators trained to at least do the minimum. When you have, when you want to find out about a person or entity that's making a claim, research them. Go to an investigator, go to Xperia, go to any, go somewhere, or train in-house people to at least do a little bit of the information, uh, information gathering. Once you have a suspicion, then you have your traditional insurance protection methods that, you know, Expera and you and, and I and everybody's familiar with. And you can you can go there. But do the do the easy part. It's not expensive to do open source intelligence. You can spend an hour on the Internet and find out if this person looks legitimate or not. You can sometimes get on their social media and see if you see the bag, see if you see some else. See if you see that that's the type of person that even remotely could be in that kind of a situation. So open source intelligence and place. Where did you buy this? Fantastic. Uh, guys, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take much more of it. Um, I think this is, like I said, we should expand on this. 
Um, this is fantastic. Thank you very much for your time today, Lauren, Jason, and Nino. Um, Lauren, if somebody needs to reach out to you, are you okay if we put your information in, in our uh, comments down below in the uh, podcast information? I th thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's great. And Jason, Nino, you can contact us by email at investigations at Xperia.ca would probably be the best. And uh, lots of eyes on that, Gary. So we'll all see it. And I love talking to you guys. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I've learned so much today uh, just with my cheap extension cords I bought for this uh, conversation. I'm looking so forward I, to part two to that. Yeah, I, I think we really do. Yeah. If you need any help destroying stuff, I'm really good at it. And I <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys. Again, I appreciate your time. And uh, until next time, uh, be safe. Thank you. You too.